together with me. <laughs> David always has the audible response. Ugh. As we come to this last core values in this series, this is the one called Embodied. I think this one in particular invites us into wonder because embodied is not just a state of being, but it taps into the truly metaphysical questions about the nature of all of reality. Whew. We are alive in bodies. How did that come to be? God came to us in a body. What does that mean? We are called as a church to be the body of Christ. How does that flesh out? To be alive is to be embodied. But we are not just here talking about physical bodies. It's not just, this core value is not just about us being alive in a body. But we're also talking about how the Spirit of God becomes unified with us individually and corporately to make up this body of Christ. In other words, embodiment is what happens when God becomes flesh and when humans are filled with God's Spirit. It's what happens when our faith becomes integrated into our being. And it fleshes out as a state of being and action in the world. And the term embodied can be used as both an adjective and a verb. It can describe and it can act. I want to tell you about some extraordinary experiences that I have had. I want to share with you some stories that have made me wonder over the years about the nature of God and all of reality. And I want to preface these stories by saying there are not morals to these stories. I'm not speaking theology about these stories. They're not to teach a lesson, but rather they are to open a window to how God becomes embodied, enfleshed, and incarnate. They are not theological treaties, but rather experiences that have taken my breath away as I have become aware of God's presence in me, near me, around me, with me. I'm sure if all of you sat down and thought about it, you could come up with three to four stories of your own, right? Moments that you can't explain necessarily the value and the significance of, but they speak to you nonetheless in a deep way. So the first story I want to tell is the story of the most real communion I have ever received. And what makes this story stand out to me is that it wasn't actually communion at all. Uh, at this time, it was when I was 15 or 16 years old. And uh, I volunteered at that time every week to help with this, the children's ministry 
of this um, New Start Church called Nueva Vida Church of the Nazarene. Uh, it started out of uh, my church, uh, planted it, hired a pastor, and so I was working with the children volunteering, and so every week on a school night for two to three hours, because their services were long, me and this 60 or 60, woman in her 60s, and six or seven school-aged children would get together and we would laugh and play and hear a lesson and have snacks together. And um, one night during that time, we were all together in the church kitchen. And I don't know what the lesson was about, but maybe it was about like the yeast, you know, working through the dough because the woman in her 60s, her name was Sue, and she had planned for us to make bread together. And so she led me and the children in this exercise of making bread. And, and I remember it came out of the oven, and we started to eat this bread together. And we had, I don't know where it came from, this honey. And we were just dipping this bread in this honey, and we were eating it. And, and as we ate and laughed and shared together. It was, I swear, it was like all the dividing lines. If you had looked in from the outside, it would have been like this 15, 16-year-old white girl, this 60-plus-year-old white woman, and these brown children, you know, who looked different, but we all sort of became one. And it was like we came into unity, and that bread and that honey became for us the body and blood of Jesus. And I can't explain it, but it was something about the coming into union with them in that moment that made it feel so real, so much like the body of Christ broken for us. The second story takes place in my living room. And I was pregnant. I don't know which kid I was pregnant with. I suspect it was probably daily. And now, some of you know, I don't just open up to just anyone. But my midwife was there, and she was checking on me. And um, I was having a rough week, maybe even a rough month, probably a rough pregnancy. Um, but I had hardly realized myself just how much I was going through. And before I realized it, even before I realized what I was saying, I found myself spilling all of what was happening to my midwife, Cheryl, who sat across from me on the couch, gently. And this woman, who has 30 years' experience delivering babies and eight children of her own, sat there and listened to me with the patience of a therapist and the empathy of a mother. And when I had finally finished, she started speaking and shared with me this compassionate wisdom, wisdom that I had really needed, though I didn't know it. She saw more than I did. And it was like, for that one prenatal checkup, I got the gift of her personhood, the gift of her priesthood, the gift of her motherhood, and the gift of her uh, profession, all for the price of one. 
She had transformed in that moment into a person God had sent and had used to meet me where I didn't even know I was. This last story happened about three years ago. And at the time, I had been attending this um, uh, Leftio Divina and Centering Prayer Group at Christ the King for about two years. And um, the women and the couple men who came to this group, I had gotten to know them. Well, I had at least gotten to know their prayers. And I knew Warner was this um, kind of high up guy within the PCUSA denomination. And I knew Kim was a massage therapist and that she worked with Edible Magazine. And I knew that Sue ran a nonprofit for children who became hospitalized because they had been sexually abused. But this one day, we were praying on this scripture in James chapter 1. And it says in there, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. And that phrase stuck out to me in our prayer. And, and I don't know why, because it's actually way too long to be a Lectio, pray, a Lectio word, and it's way too long to center my prayer on, right? But it stayed with me nonetheless. And it rang in my head as clear as a bell, so much so that, that since that day, I've had that verse memorized. I can recall it without even thinking. And when the gong rang and the prayer time was over, I looked up and I was sitting next to this lady, Amy. And she shocked me when she said, I'm going to use that in my sermon on Sunday. What? I have been sitting next to you for two years during centering prayer and I didn't know you were a pastor until this moment? Well, some of you know how that story has developed. Amy has been a dear friend to me since that day, and she has served in the role of spiritual director when we did the practice pilot. Many of you have gone to see her over the years at one time or another. But at that moment, it was like God was saying, ta-da, here is this gift. Amy was that gift. These stories speak to me, one human who became aware of these glimpses of embodiment, God breathing into ordinary moments. Our passage from Genesis today retells us once again the story of the first embodiment formed from the Adamah, the Hebrew word for the ground, comes the Adam, the human. And God breathes into the human, and the human becomes alive. Not only alive, but alive with such complexity that even today, with our greatest scientific, uh, philosophical, uh, psychological minds, we have, are still unraveling what it means to be human. We are still discovering and unearthing the nuances of what happens on that first day. God breathed life into humans, and God has been breathing life into humanity since then. And sometimes we glimpse it. 
humans like us, though, we can get caught up when we start to try to understand it. You know, it's kind of like uh, taking the fruit of the knowledge of that protected tree is a part of this epic story, right? Of course it is. We want to understand it. Humans try to understand, and so we segment, and we study, and we present, and we build, and we accomplish, and we sustain, and we create, and we comprehend. With our knowledge, we can control, and so we categorize, and segregate, and make borders, and laws, and tribes. But in all of this, we have lost sight of our innocence in receiving life. And we also have the tendency to lose touch with the ability to be present to contradictions and innocent in the face of challenges. We've protected ourselves from risky innocence with layers of ego structures and supplies and schedules and accomplishments and satisfactory positions. Our heads know our hearts will follow, we think. Our wisdom guides our emotions, they'll subside, we think. Our education provides, our passions are subsidized, we think. Our beliefs prioritized, and our experiences are compartmentalized, we think. We think so much in the West that thinking is primary. I heard this guy telling about how up until he was almost 30 years old, he always thought of his body as a container for his brain. Like, like I know I need my body because it holds my brain. Like, I've got to walk, I've got, my brain has to walk around in the world, so I need my body to do that. Descartes, who was a French philosopher in the 16th century, took this to heart and laid the foundation of this for us in the West with this primary principle of philosophy that he outlined. Who knows it? Anybody? Therefore I am. I think. I think. Therefore I am. What an amazing resistance to Descartes is the God who speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, this crazy little tumbleweed who caught fire. And Moses turns aside and says to the tumbleweed, after he's taken off his shoes, who should I tell, who should I tell them sent me? And what does God say? Tell them I am because I am sent you. I am because I am. Not I think, therefore I am. I am, therefore I am. Could it be that God's way of sharing God's image with us is being a being? I am, therefore I am, without the dividing lines, knowing and unknowing, equally welcome at the table. 
it's like we have a globe in my house and it's like spinning that globe and it has all these lines on there. You know, the places where we know all the countries are, right? But if you go out into space and you look back at the earth, there are no lines dividing. And children see the world in this way. I'm so glad we have some children with us today. From what I know of children, they don't segregate, segment, make borders, laws, tribes, or morals. Children explore, accept, they relate, they approach each day, each person, each moment with innocence. They bring their whole selves because they don't yet know how to only bring a part of themselves. They don't yet know how to only bring their brain. They don't yet know how to suppress their emotions. They don't yet know that God and the world are somehow disconnected. It reminds me of this video that pops up on my, um, on this day every once in a while, a daily, and she's like 18 or 19 months old. And she's just saying, she's just babbling, and she's just saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Who taught her that? I don't know. I don't know where that came from. It's like, this is why it's like banging your head against the wall when you try to teach children like morality, right? Like, you know, you, you, you believe, they believe you, of course, like, this is how it is. They believe you. And then, like, the moment later, when you think the issue has been, you know, sufficiently covered, they always think of the most unanswerable question to frustrate the wisdom of your teaching. You know, they ask you, like, a question that you literally never thought of before. They've connected these dots that you have never connected before, and you have no idea how to answer them. Children are known for this. You know, some of us in this room have decided that the best answer to those questions is, hmm, I wonder what you think. Right? Because I couldn't answer that question. I wonder what you think. And I wonder if it's just because they are so much more in touch with the unknowable and unsegregated nature of the world and all that exists. It reminds me, the story, I mean, the story is like one of those amazing preacher stories. Like, you're never going to get a story better than this, right? Story came home from kindergarten. It was like within her first couple weeks of her new school at Whitsitt. And she came home and she had all of this excitement. Guess what, Mama? Guess what? She's like five. Guess what, Mama? What? They have cups of Jesus' blood at school. Big cups. Big cups. Oh, wow, I say, like clicking in my head. She goes on. did. 
But I, like most adults, have had a good dose of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And that has made it harder for me to see the fruit of the vine that Jesus shared in the places we least expected. I know better. The wonder of the big, beloved cups of Jesus' blood has melted away and been replaced by hardened hearts and tablets of stone to follow. Sacraments are a thing to understand. Not a big, sweet cup of love made available every day of the week at the lunch table. But I wonder, is it really supposed to be that way? If you know the stories of the people of God, that you know that the calling of Abram was an invitation to wonder how the laws of nature are not laws at all, but rather an invitation to believe with childlike faith that old barren women can have children and grandchildren as numerous as the stars in the sky. And here's the thing. A child would have totally believed Sarai would have had children. It's actually the child would have to be taught why Sarai could not have children. What is for an adult a miracle is just a Tuesday for a child. But the hard stone laws of adult morality that earns God's acceptance were never meant to stay in our heads, but rather they were given to infect our hearts and our bodies as well. The prophet Jeremiah prophesies about this when he says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach each other, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. God's way to reconnect us is to reconnect all of us. This is number one on your paper. Jesus is God's embodiment, showing us the way, not teaching us the facts. Early Christians weren't called the facts because they had the facts to peddle. They were called the way because they had a way to live. This way wasn't about rote memorization or even primarily orthodoxy. This way, the way, is about connecting all of who we are with God's love, acceptance, connection, relationship, and childlike innocence. Being born again. Oh, this is where I need my pencil. A little bit
ordinary box at all. If anything, Jesus came with a big eraser, erasing dividing lines of society, erasing our dissertations of the knowing of God, erasing the orthodoxy of our traditions. Of course, Jesus did say positive things, too. He redrew the lines in some way, but that's not the point I am making here. It's kind of like when Daly colors and she just goes, on a coloring sheet with lines on it. It's like totally ignoring the lines. Jesus' life becomes for us as little Christs an invitation to return to the union of God present in all of creation, a re-creation, present in our own origin story of creation, present in the incarnation, present in our very bodies. Number two, our worship is not a box to check. Our worship is our very lives. Everything matters. Number three, everything about you matters to God. This is holiness. At Jesus' death in the passage that David read for us today. This is beautiful. I invite, invite you to wonder. At Jesus' death, the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Okay, imagine the temple where the presence of God resides. You go into the temple, and there's the court to get ready to enter the presence of God. And then only the priests can go into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God actually resides. And the wall to the Holy of Holies was a curtain. At Jesus' death, the curtain to the Holy of Holies tears in two from top to bottom at this minute. Get this? At the very minute that Jesus gives up his spirit. Maybe it should say, Jesus gave over his spirit. The spirit broke out of the Holy of Holies and God breathes once again into humanity. The Ha'adam, the human, once again receives the breath of God. A fresh start. And because of this, number four, there is no longer a divide between the sacred and the secular. The law has been written on our hearts, or in other words, the curtain has been torn. The dividing lines have been erased. I wonder, I, is it any wonder that salvation in the Bible is often talked about? Is, is uh, not a, it's not a truth to know, but it's a cleansing from sin. It's an erasing. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, the psalmist writes. Salvation is this removal of clean dividing lines, like that time when I was 16 or 17 years old. That time that wasn't technically communion, though somehow it felt even more real. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus had prayed over that meal to the Father before he was. Maybe it was the most real communion. Though I can't exactly say that because I don't know it in my brain. But somehow my body knows that it was real. Embodiment is this thing that drives us deeper into God's arms and simultaneously deeper into the lives that God has given each of us. There is no veil. There is no dividing line. I don't know if you've ever heard the term thin places before. Uh, it's being used a lot more right now in like missional church communities and I believe it originated in Ireland. But a thin place is described as a place where the boundary between heaven and earth is especially thin. A place we can sense the divine more readily. I've actually never liked this idea of a thin place. Confession. Because for me, this idea of a thin place doesn't go far enough. As if there's still a line. Heaven is all around us. It is in us. And sometimes we get glimpses. Everything about us matters to God. If there is a line in the sand, then it is in the shape of an arrow, pointing us to this vision of things much bigger, this reunion with God and with the human. The lines that make up the rules for orthodoxy are not in, are not, I knew I was going to have a hard time saying this. The lines that make up the rules for orthodoxy are not ends in and of themselves. And our practices and traditions aren't either. We don't do these things to do these things. We don't believe these things to believe these things. They are arrows pointing us to God, to union with God. Now, here's what I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting this like structureless society of hippies or like communes, like we did that in the 60s. That wasn't around, but we did that. I'm not suggesting that we don't live, I, what I'm suggesting is that we don't live from the place of these dividing lines or these like boxes of bullet journals or graph paper, right? Like, yeah, it's a part. It's a part, but it's not the part we usually need to help with, right? I'm also not suggesting we ignore those lines, right? Like, knowing that those lines exist actually can help us know where the Spirit of God is most needed. It can direct our prayers and our presence. The Sunday, weekday divide, worship divide, can give us clarity to invite the Spirit into our daily lives. The lines between us because of race or gender or belief systems or neighborhood of origin make us so aware of where God's spirit is needed, where God's church is needed. The trouble arises when we can only see this wisdom of our own belief systems. When that becomes a divining line between our brains and our hearts, our brains and our bodies, cutting off part of ourselves or 
parts of the body of Christ, crippling us, making us stagnant, taking the breath from our lungs and the strength from our body. So here it is, as clearly as I can say it. Our relationship with God is not a mental exercise. It is embodied. Many of you know that we started Kaleo um, out of, with the kind of structure, shifts in thinking, and logo of this German um, church plant called Kia. Kia means Kirchen Action, or Church in Action. One of the things that they came up with many years ago, um, and this is, you know, uh, is this necklace that they have crafted. And it was this crucifix where Jesus' arms and legs were cut off, and it's modeled after this well-known crucifix that hangs in a church somewhere, I don't know where. Um, now, the name of it didn't translate super well into English. They called it Cripple Jesus. Okay. Yeah, it didn't translate well. But this whole idea, right? Here's this, here's the necklace. This whole idea was that if we are the body of Christ and um, we don't become embodied as Christ in the world, then Christ has been crippled. If Christ doesn't have all of us, if Christ doesn't have all of us, then Christ's body is crippled. Number five, ultimately, embodied is just another word for holiness. In closing, I want to read um, the passage of scripture that arguably led to my sanctification over early mornings in a booth in Germany at a table in 2007. I was learning firsthand that to be a missionary actually just meant being me in a different country. It was like blowing my socks off, right? Like I was kind of in awe and also confronted by the reality that being a missionary was actually just being me somewhere else. Or now I would say being me somewhere. And I was being confronted by my failures at community living. I've been living in basically an intentional community with six other Americans for 10 months. And this was at the end of my time. And it was very discouraging to me how I could have traveled across land and sea to preach the gospel. But I just couldn't bring myself to wash the dishes. And that's where this passage in Romans 12, Romans 12 met me. Of course, from Eugene Peterson's The Message translation. And I invite you this morning to let it meet you here. Because for all of our trying, we just can't make ourselves whole. We need the breath of God. So hear these words. Search your heart. Search your mind. Search your body for dividing lines. Is there somewhere that sin has a hold? Is there somewhere that God wants to erase 
the thing holding you back from full openness to God. God can breathe life into you and make you whole, embodied by God's spirit. And I want to invite you as a response this morning, we're not going to have our breakout discussion groups at the end today. We'll have lots of time for that next week. But just for today, I invite you to write a prayer for God, prayer to God as a response. You have some paper on each of your uh, benches. And I want to invite you to, to bring it up and to put it in this pot that we normally use for offering at the foot of the cross here. And you can do that while I'm reading or while Noah sings the ending song here today before the children return. No one's going to go back and look at it later. This is just for you. We'll burn it in the Christ candle or something. I don't know. But uh, I invite you to respond that way. To pray a prayer. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for God. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I am speaking to you out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living, then, as every one of you does in pure grace, it is important that you not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No. God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what God does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. In this way, we are like the various parts of the human body. Each part gets its meaning from the whole body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body, a chosen people, each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of this body. But as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts of Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be, without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, just Preach God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help. Don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you give encouraging guidance, be careful not that you don't get bossy. If you're put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. 
If you work with the disadvantaged, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame. Be alert. Servants of the master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they are happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with no nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Bum, bum, bum. We just touched all of our centers. That's crazy. And so part of this song is to bring all of our centers together. So we're going to do this again. Here we go. Ready? Bum, 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 bum. I'm going to add another one. Ready? Here we go. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, bum. Whoa, check it out. Okay. We'll do it again from the top, ready? Bum, 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 bum. Thank you, you are doing such a good job. Here we go, one more time. Bum, 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 bum. We're gonna go back up. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, how are we feeling? We're doing pretty good, okay? Now I'm gonna add words to it. Can y'all keep saying bum? <laughs> I feel sad that we're just using the words back. Here we go, up in the beginning. Broken people be made whole. Be made whole. And be made whole. Y'all think you can add the words with me? Yeah, yeah, here we go. Ready? Broken people be made whole, be made whole, be made whole again. Here we go. Bro 